Like you to turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 7. In 1903 in St. Petersburg, Russia, someone noticed a Russian sentry standing guard at a rather unusual post for no apparent reason. And when asked why the guard was standing there, he answered, I'm just following orders. Well, the question was asked of the captain of the guard, but he didn't know why the sentry was posted there either. So the inquiry eventually went up the chain of command to the czar, but he didn't know either. And so he asked that someone track down the answer to that question. Finally, it was discovered that in 1776, Catherine the Great had planted a rose bush there and posted a sentry to guard it. The bush had been dead for over 80 years, but the sentry was still standing guard. You know, sometimes we guard things that are dead and gone because traditions are hard to change. And I think that's especially true of religious traditions. Sometimes we do things and we don't know why, but we keep doing them anyway. And someone, if someone suggested that we would change, we would say, what? But we've always done it this way. Well, imagine being a Jew in the first century. You could look back at the religious traditions and say, not only have we always done it this way, but God ordained it to be done this way. When the book of Hebrews was written, the traditions and practices of the law had been in place for almost 15 centuries. And the law was the very center of the Jewish culture. They ordered their lives around Sabbath worship and yearly feasts. They centered their lives around continuous worship at the temple with the priests and the Levites. They centered their lives around the sacrifices and the rules and, and the ceremonial cleansing. And not only were these laws and traditions deeply entrenched, but they could open the Bible and say, Thus says the Lord. So to challenge the validity of these practices was to risk your life. What was it that led the Jews to stone Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 6? Well, they said this in verse 13. This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. When the Jews revolted against Paul in Acts chapter 21 and verse 28, they said, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. You see, the talk against Judaism was fighting words. And so the writer of Hebrews is taking on a rather formidable task. He is trying to convince his Jewish Christian readers that the law and the Levitical priesthood are now obsolete and are to be set aside because there is a new covenant and there is a better priesthood. He is trying to convince us that we are guarding a bush that is dead and gone. And he makes some pretty radical statements in this passage. If you look in chapter 7 and verse 18, he tells us that the law is weak and useless. In verse 19, he tells us that the law made nothing perfect. And because of that, he tells us back in verse 12 that the law has been changed. That is, it has been replaced. And he tells us in verse 18 that it has been set aside. Pretty radical statements about the law. But this is not just a negative passage. Because when we get to verse 19, he presents the positive side. There is a new rose bush. And the positive side is that there is a better hope. 
And so his message is clear. We must leave Judaism and come to Jesus. We must leave the old and come to the new. We must leave law and come to grace. And we cannot blend the two into some kind of homogenous hybrid. We have to leave the old behind and come to the new. In our passage this morning, the writer is still dealing with the subject of Melchizedek. In the, in the passage we looked at last week, chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, the point was that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and therefore greater than Levi, and therefore his priesthood was greater than the Levitical priesthood. This week, in verses 11 to 19, he takes it a step further. Not only is Melchizedek greater than Levi, but he replaces Levi and his priesthood. And on top of that, the law, which is so closely linked to the Levitical priesthood, has also been replaced. Now we're going to see that in four points. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first two are negative, the last two are positive. The first is the inferiority of the Levitical priesthood in verse 11. Notice verse 11. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Now, the Levitical priesthood had one major problem. It couldn't make anyone perfect. And that word perfection means to complete, to fulfill, to bring to its goal. In the book of Hebrews, we've seen that this word is used synonymous with salvation. In fact, in this passage, we see a contrast in how he uses this term. If you look at verse 19, he says, For the law made nothing perfect, there's our word, and on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. He contrasts not being able to make someone perfect with being able to draw that person to God. That's what salvation is. Salvation is drawing us to God. That is the goal. That is the completion. That is perfection. And that is the thing that the Levitical priesthood could never do because they had one major barrier that they could not overcome, and that barrier was sin. You see, the Levitical priesthood was designed to represent people before God, but all the sacrifices and all the rituals and all the ceremonies just kept them standing at a distance. And later in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, we're told the reason. It says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Even the high priest in the Levitical system could only come in the Holy of Holy Places once a year. And he could only come in after he had made a sacrifice for himself and then he came in with blood to sprinkle it on the mercy seat and then he scurried out as quickly as he could. You see, the Levitical priesthood was inferior. And the proof of that is at the end of verse 11 where he says that it has been replaced by a new priesthood. Now the logic of the readers at this point in time might be this. They might be thinking, you know, it seems to me that Aaron's priesthood actually replaced Melchizedek's priesthood because Aaron's priesthood came 500 years after Melchizedek. So if you look at it chronologically, you say, here was Melchizedek and here was Aaron, and it looks like Aaron replaced Melchizedek. And so his point is, he leaves Genesis chapter 14, where he was talking from last week, and he moves to Psalm 110, verse 4, which he quotes in verse 17, where David prophesies that a priest will arise after the order of Melchizedek. And what he's saying is that David wrote this 400 years into the Levitical priesthood. He makes a prophecy and says there's another priest coming, and he's coming after the order of Melchizedek. And so this new order replaces the old order because it's inferior. Second point is the inferiority of the law in verses 12 to 14. Notice verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed... Of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Now, that's a radical implication. When you change the priesthood, of necessity, you also change the law. 
because they are so closely linked together, you cannot separate one out and not the other. So he says, when, a Leviticus, when the Levitical priesthood is taken out of the way, the law is taken out of the way. It's kind of like if the President of the United States decided to proclaim himself King of the United States. He couldn't do that. You know why? Because U.S. law makes no provision for that. In order for that to happen, the first thing that would have to, have to happen would be a change in the law. Well, the law of Moses made no provision for a high priest to arise out of the tribe of Judah. So for Jesus to be our great high priest, there had to be a change of the law. And there has been. The Bible tells us that the entire system of Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and has been taken out of the way. In fact, it's more clear when we get to verses 18 and 19. Just look over there. It says in verse 18, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Now look at that phrase, setting aside. It's a legal term that means to annul. Just as the Levitical priesthood is inferior because it couldn't make anyone perfect, the law is also inferior because it can't make anyone perfect. And so the writer says it has been set aside. It has been annulled. It has been canceled. Now I want you to understand, this is a radical statement that he's making here. Some Bible teachers like to divide the law into the civil law and the ceremonial law and the moral law. And then they try to soften a passage like this by saying, that the writer here is referring to the civil law and the ceremonial law, but he's not really referring to the moral law. We see, the Bible doesn't make a distinction between the civil law and the ceremonial law and the moral law. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament and try to separate them, you'll find that they're all mixed together. It seems clear to me that when the New Testament says we are not under law, it's talking about the whole law, civil, ceremonial, and moral Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 puts it this way. It says, Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. That's the law. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now what did he nail to the cross? Was it just the civil law and the ceremonial law? Well, if so, I don't know about you, but I'm in trouble. Because I have broken the moral law. It's the moral law that condemns me, and it's the moral law that Jesus nailed to the cross and took out of the way. In fact, the Jews in Jesus' day were pretty good with the civil law and the ceremonial law. In fact, they were adding laws to that because they were so good at it. Their problem was the moral law. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Christ set us free from the law. And what law did he set us free from? He set us free from the whole law. The civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law. Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says, We have died to the law and have been released from the law. You see, I'm not just released from having to observe the annual feasts. I am not just released to be able to pick up sticks on the Sabbath day. I am released from having to keep the moral code. You say, well, wait, wait a minute, Dan. Wait a minute. Does that mean that a Christian has the right to be lawless? You see, being free from the law doesn't mean being free to sin. Being free from the law means being free to do the will of God from the heart. In fact, here's what God says when he describes the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant 
Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Not like the old covenant. Not like the law. I'm making a new covenant. But this is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. You see, the old covenant was written on stones. The new covenant is written on hearts. The old covenant was external. The new covenant is internal. And today we obey God, not because of outward compulsion, but because of inward constraint. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14 says, The love of God controls us, constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6 describes it this way, Not by way of eye service, as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's the new covenant. You see, it's not only my new motive that is different, it's also my resources that are different. The Holy Spirit empowers me. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8.4 that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, we fulfill the requirement of the law not by walking according to the code. We fulfill the requirement of the law by walking according to the Spirit. And so the writer is making the point that because the priesthood has changed, of necessity, the law has changed. And the proof of that is borne out in verses 13 and 14. He says, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was designated from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Now the, the writer is telling us something that's very obvious here. Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi, which he would have had to come through to be a Levitical high priest. He came from the tribe of Judah. And I like it in verse 14 that he calls him our Lord. The promised Messiah who is God in the flesh came from a different tribe and he is a high priest after a, after a different order. And so, so not only is the Levitical priesthood inferior, but the law is also inferior. And his, it has to be changed. It has to be replaced. And then he switches to the positive in the last two points. And the third point is the superiority of Jesus' priesthood in verses 15 to 17. Notice verse 15. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. That word another is the Greek word that means another of a different kind. You see, Jesus wasn't planning to fit into the Levitical priesthood when he came. He was planning to surpass it. He was planning to supersede it. He is a high priest like Melchizedek. And then verse 16 adds, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Now, the qualifications for being a Levitical priest were all external. They were chosen strictly by their physical lineage from the tribe of Levi. On top of that, they had to be free from all kinds of physical defects, according to Leviticus 21. If you were from the tribe of Levi, but you were blind, you were disqualified. If you were lame, you were disqualified. If you had a deformed limb or a disfigured face, or you were a hunchback, or you were a dwarf, even though you were from the tribe of Levi, you were disqualified by those external qualifications. And then even when they were ordained. It was a very external ceremony described in Exodus chapter 29. It says they were clothed with priestly garments. They were purified with water. They were consecrated with offerings. It was all external. But here we're told that Jesus became a priest like Melchizedek based on something 
internal. Namely, verse 16, the power of an indestructible life. Now we pointed out last week that the silence of the account in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek indicates, according to verse 3, that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. And Melchizedek only foreshadowed Jesus, who is the one who is eternal. His life is indestructible. He went to the cross and died in our place, but death could not hold him. And that's why verse 17 quotes from Psalm 110 and verse 4, saying, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the key word that he wants us to see there is that word forever. Jesus' priesthood is superior because it's not based on external qualifications. It's based on internal qualifications. His indestructible life. And Jesus' priesthood is superior because it is not temporary. It is eternal. And then fourthly, we see the superiority of the new covenant in verses 18 and 19. Notice again, it says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the one hand, the law has been set aside. It has been annulled. It has been canceled. Why? He says, because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, we know that the, weaknesses, the weakness and the uselessness of the law was not inherent in the law itself. That's something that Paul explains for us in Romans chapter 7 and 8 where he says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, but the problem is the weakness of sinful flesh that can't keep the law. See, the problem is not with the law. The law is holy and righteous. The problem is me. I can't keep the law. And so when it says the law made nothing perfect, it shouldn't be a big surprise to us because the law was never given to make us perfect. The law was not given to bring us to God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gave the law for one purpose, and that was to show us that we're sinners. I've often said the law is like a mirror. A mirror shows you that you're dirty, but you don't wash yourself in the mirror. The law is the mirror. It shows us we've got a problem. It doesn't solve our problem. It just shows us we've got one and points us to the one who can solve that problem, who is Jesus Christ. And then in the rest of verse 19, he says, on the other hand, on the one hand and now on the other hand, he says, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That better hope refers to Jesus. And if you slide down to verse 22, it tells us that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. We have a better hope, Jesus, who brings in a better covenant, namely the new covenant, and it is better. It is superior. Now, the writer of Hebrews likes this word better. It only appears 18 times in the New Testament, 12 times in the book of Hebrews. He tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 6, verse 5, the writer is convinced of better things concerning us. Chapter 7, verse 22, we have a better covenant. Chapter 8, verse 6, we have better promises. Chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus is a better sacrifice. Chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus' blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. Chapter 10, verse 34, we have a better possession in heaven. Chapter 11, verse 16, we desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Chapter 11, verse 35, we, we receive a better resurrection. In chapter 11, verse 40, God has provided something better for us than for the Old Testament saints. And here in chapter 7, verse 19, we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. And the author's point should be obvious. If we have something better, then why would we want to go back to something worse. You see, the law and the Levitical priesthood couldn't make anyone perfect. They didn't let anyone draw near to God. In fact, they kept people at a distance. 
But Jesus, our high priest, and the new covenant which he brings make us perfect. They complete the goal because through Jesus, we draw near to God. I don't know if we really appreciate this. You really have to study the Old Testament law and the Old Testament traditions and understand the Jewish people. You see, we don't have to stand out in the courtyard while a high priest goes in one time a year to represent us before God. We don't have to stand at a distance in fear thinking if we ever get too close to where God is, we're going to be struck dead. Hebrew tells us we have a high priest and he is inside the veil. And he invites us to draw near to the very throne of God, which he tells us is a throne of grace where we receive grace to help in times of need. Later in chapter 10, in verse 19, he's going to develop this theme even more clearly of drawing near. And this is what he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. Is that amazing? We have confidence to walk right into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. The Levitical priesthood and the law said, stay away under the new covenant and our high priest, Jesus Christ. We are invited to draw near. Let me close by asking you a couple questions. Number one, who is your high priest? Everybody's, everybody's got to have a high priest. A high priest represents men before God. Who is representing you before God? You say, well, I, I, I think my parents are. You say, uh, uh, my pastor's doing that, or, or my parish priest is doing that, or, or my church is doing that. My church is representing me before God. Or some of you may be saying, it's me. I, I'm planning to be my own defense attorney when I stand before God. It's pretty shaky representation. The Bible tells us that we can answer that question by saying, Jesus Christ is my forever high priest with an indestructible life who has made me perfect forever. Let me ask you a second question. What have you placed your hope in? What are you trusting in? You know, my favorite question when I sit down with someone and try to figure out where they are spiritually is this. I ask them, let's assume you died today and you went before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my perfect heaven? What would you say to him? And the most common answers I hear are these. I'm doing the best I can. I, I, I'm trying to keep the Ten Commandments. You know what you're saying when you say that? You're saying, I am under the law. I am guarding that bush that has been dead and gone for years. I'm protecting something that can't help me one iota. I am trying to work my way to God. You see, if you understand the Scriptures and what the Bible is saying here, you can say, Jesus Christ has set me free from the law. And I am trusting in a new and living way, the new covenant which Jesus has provided for me through his blood. I trust that you understand that. I trust that you understand verse 19 when it says we have a better hope. The opposite of a better hope is a worser hope. And the law is a worse hope. It's not hope at all because there is no hope in you trying to work your way to heaven. It's just not going to happen. But we have a better hope in Jesus Christ who is our high priest representing us in the very throne room of God and the one who has made that new covenant, that new and living way that we come by simple faith in Jesus Christ into the presence of God and are made perfect forever. I hope you understand that. I hope you understand a better hope. And what is the better hope? It's drawing near God. So let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, that tells me that you have access to God. So my question for you in closing is, are you as close to God right now 
and you can. So that's the better hope. He has made access for us into the very holy of holies. We can draw near to God. So how near are you? You have this access through Jesus. That's why he died on the cross, to give us access into the presence of God. So how near to him am I? Paul prayed in Romans 15, 13, that we may abound in hope. We have a better hope, access to God. How do we abound in hope? We take advantage of that and we draw as near to God as we can draw. That's my prayer for myself and for each of you today. If you don't know him, that you would come to know the better hope through Jesus Christ. If you do know him, that you would abound in hope by drawing as near to God as you can draw. We're going to close in prayer. I understand Sandra Kay, are you here? Or did you leave? Sandra, where are you? Okay, if you would come forward. I wasn't planning to give an invitation today, but Sandra wants to join today, and so I'm going to let her in on a discount. Thank you. If you just walk up to the front. Now, when you get here, I'll let you turn and face the congregation, if you would. Yeah, get in that spotlight. There we go. Who's this next to you? Darren? Okay, this is Sandra Kay, and she's alongside is Darren, and Sandra is coming today to join our fellowship. And so I'll ask Bill, if he will, because he's so good at it, to walk you out to the lobby. And uh, after we close in prayer, I'll give you the opportunity to greet her and welcome her into our fellowship. You can go ahead and start walking out. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that is some, somewhat difficult to understand because it's ingrained in the traditions of the Jewish people and Judaism. And yet, Father, I pray that we would appreciate what you have provided for us through Jesus Christ. That we have one who represents us as our high priest, who is perfect, and who has provided the perfect sacrifice, which is eternal. And Father, we thank you that he ever lives to make intercession for us. We thank you that he has perfected us by simple faith in him, that he has given us the provision to draw near to you through the blood of Christ. And Father, I pray if there are those here today who have never drawn near, I pray that they would truly let go of the law, let go of trying to do it themselves, and come to simple childlike faith and trust in Jesus Christ who has done it all, who on the cross said it is finished. And Lord, that they would accept that gift of eternal life through him. And then for those of us who have trusted in you, Father, I pray that we might truly take advantage of what you have given us, that we would draw near with confidence to your throne and find the grace that you want to give us so freely, freely for every need that we face. We pray in Jesus' holy name.